You know what one of those is? You ever seen one of those? The, 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 the actual name for those things? That's a hidden image stereogram. It's a, it's a picture within a picture. These are prints that uh, when you stare at it just flat, two-dimensionally, it doesn't really look like anything, not much of a design even, but there's a, a picture hidden inside of those that's supposedly three-dimensionally supposed to pop out. At least that's what I'm told. I have never seen one of these in my entire life. Not one time. In fact, when I was... Uh, when I was decided to use this as an introduction. I li- this is literally, I went on the internet. What I wanted this introduction to be about is how I suddenly saw the light, even though I'd stared at evidence my whole life and nothing. I went and read instructions on how to see these things and change your focal point and stare through the pit. Nothing. I got nothing. There's supposed to be a teapot in there and I'm just taking the internet's word for it. I really hope there's not something highly inappropriate hidden in that thing. Uh, this may be my last Sunday. Though I could be fired for what I'm showing you right now. Trust me, I have no idea what is in there. You know, the, the evidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world is a little bit like a hidden image stereogram. In that, different people can stare at the same evidence and one person sees the big picture and like, well, yeah, it's obvious. It's right there. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one I must put my trust in. He died on the cross to save me from my sins. Somebody else can, can see the same exact information and, and just not get it or not accept it. For me, like, I just... I just can't get my eyes off the two-dimensional flat picture. Like just the little squiggles and lines is, is the only thing I can fixate on. By the way, does it work when it's projected? Does anybody actually see the teapot? Okay. All right. I'll take your word for it. This could be a giant conspiracy that I'm the only one that's not in on because I've never seen one. In Jesus' Jesus's day, here's how this was working. The scribes and the Pharisees had the exact same evidence that Jesus' disciples had that Jesus is who he said he was. In fact, the scribes and Pharisees knew the biblical evidence for Messiah. They knew that better than Jesus' disciples. But they so fixated on a few details that were different from what they expected. They so fixated on what offended them that it kept them from seeing the big picture. They, they were so offended that when Jesus showed up, he didn't want to judge Rome and the other Gentiles, but wanted to invite them to become part of the kingdom. They were so offended that Jesus wanted to sort of throw Everyone into the same lump called sinners and unrighteous. They wanted a Messiah that would recognize the righteousness they had achieved. And Jesus was constantly telling them how unrighteous and evil they were. They were so offended by stuff like that, details like that, they couldn't see the big picture. Today it often works like this. 
I can be so fixated or so scared that if I get close to God, if I go toward Jesus, He might ask me to change this or that in my life, and I ain't going there. Or I might get so fixated on some argument, some, uh, something that, that, that pretends or, or portends to, to poke holes in Christianity, some argument of logic like, well, a good God would never allow this to happen, or, or what happened to the dinosaurs, or, or uh, you know, how old the earth is. I can get so hung up on one, some detail that that becomes the, my focal point that keeps me from seeing the whole picture. Well, today in a sort of longer section of Matthew, Jesus is going to talk about one, it's not one thing, but one sort of category of thing that keeps people from seeing him for who he really is. The Savior, God, Messiah. And I'm going to call it spiritual adultery is that thing. The reason I, Jesus doesn't use that term, but he's going to call the scribes and Pharisees a wicked and adulterous generation. And he's not using the word adulterous in the way it's normally used. This has nothing to do with that. This is a This is a very unique and intentional and special charge against the religious leaders of Israel. This would have been extremely offensive to them. I'll explain why in a little bit. Um, It's a charge they knew very well. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he called them adulterous. This is a passage, the reason I'm going to kind of read it, instead of having one of the guys read it, it's a little bit longer. And it seems like Jesus is going to change topics about four times in this passage. But this is all about the same thing, spiritual adultery. And we're going to learn four things about spiritual adultery today. We're going to learn what that is. We're going to learn what it does. We're going to learn what it looks like from the outside or what it can look like, spiritual adultery. And then finally, we'll learn what the cure is to spiritual adultery. Let's read our passage first. If you have a Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 12. That's the first book of the New Testament. There's a, there's a black Bible underneath the seat in front, a seat in front of you if you'd like to follow along there. I'd love for you to have one open as we go through this. It'll also be on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation and the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it 
Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when an unclean spirit or a demon goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then the demon says, I'm going to return to my house from which I came, that first man. And when it comes, it finds that man's life, his body unoccupied, swept and put in order. And then that demon goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they all go in and live in that man, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Verse 46, And while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to Jesus. And someone said to him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my mother and sister. Excuse me, my brother, my sister, and my mother. All of that is about spiritual adultery. What it is, what it does, what it looks like, and what cures it. We start with this question, what is spiritual adultery? A little history lesson. In the Old Testament... In the Hebrew Scriptures, in Jesus' day, it was the only Bible they had. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. In the Old Testament, God often pictured himself as Israel's faithful husband. And any time the people of Israel dabbled in other religions, um, or they set up places to worship Baal or Ashtoreth and... Or when Israel asked other nations to protect them, rather than trusting God to protect them, God would charge Israel with adultery. But it wasn't physical adultery, it's spiritual adultery. It's God's way of saying, it's like you're cheating on me with these other gods or these other nations. That leads me to define for us spiritual adultery this way. Here's what I'm talking about today when I mention spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is trying to get what God promises from someone or something other than God. Anytime I take something that God has promised to give me in his word, and I want that, but I try to get that from someplace other than God, it's like I'm cheating on him. It's spiritual adultery. Adultery for the for the ancient Israelites, they uh, have a golden calf on the on the screen. Sometimes it was literal idol worship, worshiping other gods. Other times, there's this ancient Israelite. He's a farmer and he really needs a good crop this year. And God has promised to provide for him, but he thinks, you know, maybe God won't come through at the level I want. And I've got this neighbor. You know, he gives sacrifices to the god of the harvest or the god of agricultural or whatever. Maybe I'll try that. Maybe that'll work. That's how it worked then. For us today, anytime I try to be good with God without going through Jesus Christ, it's spiritual adultery. 
Anytime I try to find what God has promised, things like joy, contentment, salvation, freedom, apart from Him, it's, it's spiritual adultery. From the day Jesus showed up on the scene, from the day Jesus stepped out of the wilderness and He began His ministry with the words, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that moment on, trying to get to God without going through Jesus Christ is spiritual adultery. Here's why. God has always, since the very first sin, He's been promising a Savior. He's been promising a Messiah who would reconcile sinful men to a perfect God. Once God makes that offering through Jesus... For anybody to say, I want to get to God. I want to be pleasing to God. I want to go to a better place when I die. But if we don't use the means God gave us, it's like we're cheating on His plan, right? No thank you. It's spiritual adultery. Let's see why Jesus levels that charge at this particular group of men in today's passage, and then how he explains how dangerous it is and what it looks like, how to identify spiritual adultery, and then how to cure it. The beginning of this passage, verse 38, some new people pop up in this story. This has been an ongoing conversation between Jesus and some religious leaders called Pharisees. Today, some scribes step to the front of the pack and begin to talk. This translation on the screen translates the word scribe, experts in the law. That's who the scribes were. They're the foremost experts in what we call the Old Testament. They just called it the scriptures. It's the only Bible they had. They knew the Old Testament better than anyone. And they step to the front of the line, and here's what they say to Jesus. This sounds harmless enough. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. First, I've mentioned this before. Pay attention in the book of Matthew. Every time someone calls Jesus teacher, it's never a good conversation from a good you know, person who relates well to Jesus. Jesus being a good teacher is not enough. He must be your savior. He must be your God. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What, what response do you get when you read? If you've been reading Matthew as we've gone along, what, do you, what response do you think a person should have when these guys say, hey, we'd like to see a miracle? I think a normal response is something like this. Where have you guys been? How many miracles do you need? For like five solid chapters, Jesus has basically done nothing but miracles. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. The lame walk, the dead raised to life, the demons cast out, and these guys step up and say, we need a sign that you are who you say you are. Here's what's really going on. This is a public discrediting of Jesus by the experts in the Old Testament. Here's what this is. This is very publicly the scribes stepping forth in front of the crowd, and they're basically saying this, we, as the foremost experts on all of the prophecies about Messiah, we want everybody to know we have not seen enough to convince us that this man, Jesus, is who he is claiming to be. They know he is claiming to be Messiah and Son of God. And they say, we don't have enough evidence yet. And so... Banking either that Jesus can't or he won't, 
They give him one more chance. Either you do something super impressive, Jesus, that changes our minds, or hit the road, Jack. Well, Jesus can. They're going to say the same thing later in the book, and I'll, and I'll tell you what, uh, what I think they're asking Jesus to do. But Jesus was not big on doing tricks on demand, especially the, the demand of his enemies. So instead of doing some another miracle... Here's what he does. Verse 39, he says, Only an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. What's Jesus calling them there? Did they just ask for a sign? Yes. So they're evil and they're adulterous, right? They're evil and they're adulterous. They're cheating on God because they're evil. Wow, is it so wrong to ask for more evidence? Seriously, how many of you have ever done this? God, if you're real, do something right now to let me... I've done that. God has given the evidence that God saw fit to give. God has given evidence that God believes is sufficient. If God believes it's sufficient, is it sufficient? Yes, if God thinks the evidence of Christ being who he said he was, if God thinks that's significant enough and enough for people to believe, and you don't, who's right, you or God? God! And saying, no, it's not enough for me. You have to do something special for me. Jesus says that's evil and it's adulterous. And these guys are rejecting the one sent to save them. They're trying to mark Jesus' return to sender. God, you send us somebody better, somebody different. And the charge is you're evil and adulterous. Then, in the rest of this part of the passage, Jesus brings up two stories that would have really made these guys furious. <laughs> uh, he, Jesus says, you guys are worse than... This first one would have really got their goat. Jesus says... The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Do you know the story of the prophet Jonah? I'll try to make this short. Um, Jonah was a very reluctant prophet. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. God calls Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to a place called Nineveh and tell the Assyrians, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, tell the Assyrians about the God of Israel. And Jonah says, uh, no, thank you. I would prefer not to go to Nineveh. With good reason. The ancient Assyrians were bloodthirsty, incredibly violent. They were terrorists before they were terrorists. Literally, this would have been like a Christian today being called by God to go to tell Al-Qaeda that Jesus is their savior. Not many people would sign up for that duty. Jonah didn't want to. So Jonah decided to run away Funny thing about running away from God, it's really hard. Because wherever you run to, God's already there. Right? But, but Jonah runs in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He, part of that is he gets on a ship and he's sailing out in the Mediterranean and he can't get away from God. So God sends a storm that threatens to, to break apart this ship that Jonah is on. And Jonah's conscience gets the best of him and he tells the sailors, guys, I think this storm is my fault. I think this is my God uh, trying to, you know, get at me here. 
Uh, and I think if you guys would throw me overboard, the storm would stop. It's, it sounds altruistic. It's not. It's selfish. Because Jonah would rather die than be obedient. But he doesn't want to be guilty of killing himself. So he says, hey, I think the storm would stop if you guys just pick me up and throw me overboard. And they're like, all right. And they pick him up and they throw him in the ocean. But God says, you can't run away from me, Jonah. And he sends something. Sometimes it gets translated fish. Sometimes it gets translated sea monster. Uh, Something from the ocean, some big critter comes and swallows Jonah. And Jonah is alive inside of that thing for parts of three days. And he prays to God and he relents. And God makes that fish or whatever it is go and barf Jonah up on a beach someplace. And he probably takes a bath, and then he goes to Nineveh. And this reluctant prophet who never wanted to be there and did not want God to save those folks tells people what God wanted him to tell people, and people, Assyrians accept the God of Israel in that city in that time. All right. Here's what Jesus says to his audience that day. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. You know how Jonah was in the belly of that fish for parts of three days? I'm going to be in the belly of the earth for parts of three days. And like Jonah had a miraculous recovery from sure death, I'm going to have a miraculous recovery from actual death. I'm going to rise again, and then anybody with a brain who sees the evidence will know that I was who I said I was. I am who I say I am. That's the sign I'm going to give you but you guys won't buy it. You know why? Jesus says, verse 41, you guys are worse than the ancient Assyrians. If you tell a first century religious Jew he's worse than the ancient Assyrians, that's about as low as you can go. All they had was Jonah, Jesus said. Jonah didn't do any miracles. Jonah didn't perform any signs. Jonah just told people about God, and those people believed and repented. You guys have something far greater than Jonah in front of you, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and you guys have your fingers in your ears, refusing to believe. Next, he brings up another Gentile. He says, you guys are worse than the Queen of the South. You ever hear of the Queen of Sheba? Queen of Sheba was, lived in probably what's present-day Yemen, the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. She, this is from 1 Kings chapter 10. She heard that there was a king in Israel named Solomon who was speaking the wisdom of God. And she was so excited to hear the wisdom of God, she decided to travel all the way from present-day Yemen to, to Jerusalem. She had to fly Camel Airlines to get there. There was no in-flight movie or nothing. It took weeks and weeks. It was terribly expensive, and she did all of that just to hear the wisdom of God because she'd heard a rumor she was up there, or he was, that it was up there in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you scribes and Pharisees have the personified wisdom of God staring you in the face. And you have your fingers in your ears and you refuse to believe. She's going to be in. You guys are out. Because they're spiritually adulterous. They want their plan 
not God's. They want to stand before God on their own, not because they've been saved. They're spiritually adulterous. So what's spiritual adultery? Spiritual, spiritual adultery is any time, any time um, I try to get what God promises from something other than God. That's what it is. Next, what does it do? Right after that story, Jesus seems to to change topics, but he doesn't. And he tells this little parable that's really confusing that I'm not sure I ever understood until, what, three weeks ago when I studied for this sermon. This is cool. A a, a parable is a made-up story to prove a real point. Here's here's what Jesus says. I'm going to tell you a story about a demon that leaves, either is cast out or leaves a person that he was inside of. Okay, And he goes out, passes through waterless places, looking for someplace else to live, doesn't find anything fitting. Verse 44. Then it says, you know what? I didn't have it so bad back living in that guy. So he goes back to the guy he used to live inside, and he finds, man, that guy's life is put together. This place is swept and put together and clean. And so then it goes and brings seven friends, demon friends, even more wicked than he is, and they all go and live inside that person, and that guy, turns out, is worse off than he was at the beginning. And then here's the tie-in. Here's how I know this is still about the same topic. It's going to be the same way for this evil generation. I'm still talking about you guys. Now, what's this mean? In this parable... The person who had the demon and then the demon left and he got his life put back in order and things were good. What was his problem at that point? Did it seem like he had any problems? There's a problem that man has. Can you see what it is? When the demon decides to return, why can that demon just move back in? Because the house is empty and defenseless. And that man has no power of his own to keep the forces of darkness out of his life. That's the point of the parable. Here's why Jesus is telling it to these men. He is talking, the scribes and Pharisees were the best rule keepers in all of Israel. You know what they spent their lives doing? Trying to keep their house clean. Straighten up their lives. You scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is saying, you, you spend your whole life following the rules, doing all the sacrifices. My life is clean. My life is straightened up. And Jesus is saying, if you don't have me taking up residence in your life, you're defenseless. You can sweep and dust and arrange and make things look good all you want. There's coming a day when evil will overpower and overtake you, maybe temporarily on earth or eternally in hell. But the day is coming. You are not strong enough to defend yourself. This is what's going to happen for this evil generation. Why are they evil and adulterous? Because they reject Jesus. When someone accepts Jesus, he comes into their lives and becomes their spiritual security system that the evil one cannot overpower. 
So what does spiritual adultery do? Why is it dangerous? There's a million different ways people can get busy and stay busy doing stuff that makes it look like they're clean and put together and moral and upright. You ever hear, we just talked to some friends about this recently. You ever hear somebody say, well, I'm not Christian, but I'm spiritual. I, I pursue all kinds of spiritual things. Jesus says, you're clean in your house, but you're empty and defenseless. There's a lot of religious things. There's a lot of churchy things. There's a lot of spiritual things. There's a lot of moral things people can do to make it seem like their house is in order. And Jesus says, ultimately, it's not going to matter at all because you're empty and you're defenseless without the God of the universe and his spirit taking up residence in your heart. That's the danger in spiritual adultery. It can make us seem like we're pursuing something religiously. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to do what's right. I go to church. I go see this spiritual guy. I see that spiritual guru. I try to do all these things. It really seems to be helping. We can be really busy spiritually and be lost and empty and defenseless. That's the danger of spiritual adultery. And that story combined with the next part tells us what spiritual adultery looks like from the outside. Verses 43 through 40, excuse me, 46 through 48. Jesus is speaking this conversation. And Jesus' mom, Mary, and Jesus' brothers came and stood outside. Jesus had brothers. Mary had children. I mean, she just did. And someone interrupts and says, uh, uh, Jesus, I know you're teaching and all, but I thought I'd let you know your mama's outside. <laughs> uh, your mom's here. You got to go in. Uh, and... Jesus responds in a way that seems really harsh. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who are the people who are actually closely related to me? Here's why I say this too is about spiritual adultery. Here's why this and that little parable I just explained about the empty life and the demon coming back and finding this house all put in order and cleaned up from the outside but defenseless. Here's why this is a good picture of spiritual adultery. Because spiritual adultery, trying to get what God offers, salvation, peace, righteousness, trying to get those things apart from Jesus Christ, you know what they look like? Trying to have a clean life and trying to have a good family. You want to know what spiritual adultery in America looks like? It's not idol worship. It's not Hinduism usually. You know what it looks like? I'm trying to live a good life. And I'm trying to have a good family. You know why the Jews in Jesus' day thought they were going to a better place when they died? Because they tried to live a good life. They tried to keep the rules. And they were from the right family. You know what Jesus is screaming right here? I don't care if you're from my family. 
The way your family looks has nothing to do with whether you're going to heaven when you die. When people are in my office and I ask them, hey, if you died today, would you go to a better place? Would you, be in, would you go to heaven when you die? Oh, I, I usually say, well, I think so. I hope so. You know the reasons why they give me? It sounds like because I try to live a good life and I'm trying to have a good family. I'm a good dad. I'm trying to be a good mom. I take care of my kids. I go to church. I do more good than I do harm. I hear, listen to all the good, this and the good things I do. This is a cause I do, and I volunteer here. Right, and we're trying to, to get our family straightened out over and over and over. I'm trying to have a good life. I'm trying to have a good family. And Jesus says, I don't care if you're a part of my biological family. That ain't getting you in. At this point in his life, his brothers did not believe in him which is not hard to understand. When we get done here today, you call your brother and try to convince him you're God. See how that goes. But here's the difference between Jesus' biological brothers and the scribes and Pharisees. Maybe a year and a half or so from this time, Jesus is going to show everyone the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's going to go die on a cross He's going to be buried in the ground and parts of three days later, he's going to rise again and his biological brothers are going to look at each other and go, I think Jesus was the son of God. I, I think we'd better accept him. See, I don't think this is so much a knock on Jesus' biological family as it is an incredible invitation for the rest of us to join his family. Because Jesus gives the cure for spiritual adultery at the very end, the last two verses. Jesus has just said, who are, my bro- who are my mother and my brothers? Who are the people closely related to me? And then he points toward his disciples. And he says, behold, check this out. Looky here. These are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's the invitation. He's not degrading his biological family. He loved his mama. He loved his brothers. He's saying anyone who accepts me can be as closely related to me, closer than my biological family. In a very family-centric culture, he didn't have to tell people that he loved his family. That's a given. So there's a way to be even more closely related to me than my family is. And Jesus is the key. If you want to accept Jesus, here's the cure to spiritual adultery, is to do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven. What's that mean? Let's start with what it can't mean. Doing what Jesus is talking about here, doing the will of the Father, cannot mean following the rules. It cannot mean stop doing these bad things, start doing these good things, and then you're doing the will of the Father, and you're just like Jesus' brother. That can't be what it means. How do we know? Because Jesus is telling the best rule keepers in Israel that they're evil and adulterous and they're not in his family. There has to be something else first. You cannot reject Jesus 
and have any hope of doing the will of the Father. Later in this book, I'll just show you three examples. Later in this book, the story called the Transfiguration, Jesus is going to take three disciples, they're going to go up a hill, and Jesus for a moment is going to be, his glorified state is going to be revealed. He's going to shine like the sun, and Elijah and Moses are going to be there, and it's an incredible scene. And God's voice is going to boom from heaven and say, this, talking about Jesus, this is my one dear son in whom I take delight. Listen to him. Not Moses in the law. Not Elijah in the prophets. Listen to Jesus. You can't do the will of the Father like Jesus is talking about without accepting Jesus. What is the will of the Father? Chapter 2, 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but God is being patient toward you because he does not wish for anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. What does it look like to do the will of the Father? To not perish, come to repentance, to accept Jesus, to be saved, to be redeemed. Paul writing to Timothy says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And here's the truth. This is the will of God, to know this truth. There's one God, there's one intermediary between God and people, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all, revealing God's purpose at his appointing time. Jesus said, you want to be closely related to me? You want the cure for spiritual adultery? Do the will of God. What's the will of God? Come to a knowledge of this truth. The only hope I have is to place my faith in Jesus Christ. There's one God. There's one way to be okay with God, to go through an intermediary named Jesus. He was human. He gave himself as a ransom for my sin on the cross. So how do we tie this up? I'm spiritually adulterous. Full stop. At times, I'm guilty of spiritual adultery. Because everyone is, every time we fall into the trap of trying to get what God promises through means outside of God and His will. When I chase what I think will make me happy, but it's not what God has for me in His will. I'm spiritually adulterous. When I chase what will make me content, what will make me popular, what will make me whatever, it's like I'm, God says, I want to give that to you. You want purpose, Maxwell. You want, you want meaning. You want hope. That's what you want. I want to give that to you. Stop cheating on me and looking for that from someplace else. Nobody can give you those things the way I can. It won't hold your joy. That's what spiritual adultery is. And I'm guilty of it. And so are you. It's dangerous because we can be busy doing stuff that makes us think we're okay. We can do religious things. We can do spiritual things. We can do moral things. We can be better than most people and be empty and defenseless. 
We can spend our whole lives putting our life together, trying to live a clean life and have a good family and come to the end of our life and find out we didn't do the first step of the wisdom, the will of God, which is understand I'm spiritually adulterous. I cannot save myself. I need a savior and his name is Jesus. Where are you at with him? If you died right now and God said, hey, why should I let you in here? What would you say? Would your list of reasonings why you should go to heaven, would they be things like, here's all the good stuff I've done. My good outweighs my bad. I volunteer. But it all boiled down to, I'm, I'm trying to get better. And I'm trying to have a good family. Because Jesus said that's not enough. Jesus said, doing the will of the Father, which is repent. Repent of my righteousness. Repent that I can be okay in God's eyes on my own. I've got to change my mind about that idea. I can't. I'm spiritually adulterous. And I need to be saved. I need him to have died the death I deserve and believe that's the only way that I can be okay before him. You believe that? Would you pray with me? Father God, personally, I thank you for a challenging text that was a good time to study. But God, I also thank, thank you for, uh, for coming at me with the truth of my own spiritual unfaithfulness. God, where I have spent time in my life chasing things you promised to give, but I wasn't patient for you. Or where I've tried to do things that made me seem good. Like my house was in order and swept and tidy. God, if the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't keep the rules good enough to get in, well, I have no chance. But I thank you for sending the security system. The Savior, Jesus, to die for my sins. God, I just pray that you would impress upon our hearts our need for the opposite of spiritual adultery, which is spiritual single-mindedness and faithfulness. That we see our lives more and more as the cure for spiritual adultery, a close relationship with Jesus, doing life with you, Lord. For when we let go of you, our spiritual adultery is soon to follow. Thank you, Lord, that you protect our house, protect our life, and save our souls. We love you for your faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and finish with us.